0: This has been a wonderful, wonderful audience. They were all so excited. Please, have a seat. I have just a couple of words. I've I've been talking to them for a few minutes. They're so glad you're here.
1: The smart people are
0: here. Oh, boy. They are happy. And now they need to know who this person is that's been talking to them. I'm Carla Hayden uh, from the Inning Prep Free Library, and welcome. This is a very, very special edition of our Writer's Live series, and we are so grateful for the support of one main financial, the wonderful car. All of those things are possible from them, and we appreciate it. Now, tonight is special because we are being joined by—we're a little prejudiced, but— one of the greatest journalists, political experts, and a very talented writer. We are so honored to have MSNBC's Chris Matthews back here at the Pratt Library in Baltimore. Now since his last book and his last visit to the Pratt Library, I, I'm gonna I might embarrass him a little bit, but he has been very generous with his support. And his time for the Pratt Library's efforts. And we can't thank him enough for his generosity and, and just wonderful things like getting a sneak uh, behind-the-scenes tour from the set for our donors and all of that. That was really cool. That fetched might a price. But tonight, he returns to discuss his new book, Tip and the Gipper, When Politics Work. Now, I don't have to tell you how timely this book was. When it was released a couple of weeks ago. In fact, Mr. Matthews might be one of the luckiest authors in the world. (laughs) On the first day of the government shutdown, his new book hit the bookstores and the government. He was on every show possible. And as Washington was embroiled in debate, Mr. Matthews' book outlined a different time in Washington when Republicans and Democrats crossed the aisle and worked together. And as a top aide to the Speaker of the House, Tip O'Neill, he was able to witness firsthand a time that really showed what we are having a hard time imagining now. So please welcome the person who is also going to be on Alec Baldwin's show tonight at 10. Mr. Chris Matthews.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Well, I'll be done by 10. <laughs> and uh, I brought the queen along. There she is, Kathleen. And um, So, uh, conspiracy theories are amazing. My floor director here at thank you for coming, my buddy. Uh, You know, uh, so the book comes out October 1st. It's about how government should be run when you have two parties. We're always going to have two parties as long as we live, and they're always going to be dividing power as long as we live. We don't live in some third world country where there's one party that runs the show. It's always going to have to be like this. So it's going to have to be some kind of compromise, and the people who hate the word compromise are not good people. They're just not good because life is compromised, whether you decide where to go on vacation or, you know, or you know what church you're going to go to, you know, you've got to work on this stuff, you know, and grown-ups do it pretty well. Um, so this is the theory that's out there that I, some of these wingers have come up and said, Matthews, you just came out with that book, this book, because you wanted to attack the Tea Party. You just, You just did this to stick it to the Tea Party, and I go... So, I just wrote a 423 page book. I just knocked it out of my typewriter in about a week when I heard the tea party was coming. These people are crazy. You know, it takes a long time to write a book. Oh, yeah, I somehow went back in time and kept a journal. I'm freaking crazy. I'm unbelievable. You can't stop me. I'm coming to get you. It's like they said that woman who had type 1 uh, Diabetes, at the, signing, at the sermon the other day at the uh, Rose Garden, it just fainted behind the press, this poor young woman. They said she did it as part of a, 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 a street theater. Did you look at her face? She was fainting. I mean, they thought she did this as some sort of prop, you know. These people are really loony tunes. This is not the planet we live on. And no matter how much you hate government or angry, it doesn't, it doesn't justify insanity. It doesn't. You can argue, the government spends too much, sure, let's argue. Spending's on the wrong thing, sure, let's argue. You know, there's lots of room for debate. In fact, the great thing about this country is we've been arguing about the same two things since the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists went to war with each other, since Hamilton fought with Jefferson. And they compromised. They put the capital in the, well, the highest humidity city in America. (laughs) Because they wanted to make it somewhere between north and south. (laughs) You know, they do compromise. It's how you do things. And um, anyway, the real reason I wrote this book is because I lived it. And I, you know, you only have so much material in your life that you actually lived. I have three big chunks of material in my life that I think are interesting to people that did not live the life I led. First of all, being in politics all the 15 years I was in it, on the inside... And being there every single day with Tip O'Neill, every single day he fought with Reagan, when he would meet with me and Ari Weiss and Kirk O'Donnell, and and we would plan the day and plan the week. And I was right there. And so I've never been right there. I was right there on the plane with President Carter when we lost. You know, I was just out at the Reagan Library and they sat in the seat I sat in, because they've got Air Force One out there, the one we had. And I was there and we got the call, we're gonna lose by 10. I was with Jimmy Carter in planes. You know, I've been lucky to be at different places. I was at the Berlin Wall when it came down. I was in South Africa when they had the first elections. I was in Northern Ireland when they, uh, they finally got the peace treaty between the Protestants and the Catholics. So I'm Zelig. okay? I've been there. But I wanted to write about the time where I was really on the front lines in politics, liberal against conservative, and saw a different kind of politics than you see today. I kept a journal. Now, today, nobody keeps a diary because they're afraid of being subpoenaed. That's, that's what's changed I go, don't you keep a diary? How do you keep sanity without keeping a diary? I I kept it for sanity. Tip would be yelling at me. Reagan would yell at Tip. The pressure was unbelievable. The only way I could live with it was to go home and say, okay, worst day of the year. (laughs) Because it was the worst day and tell Kathy about it. I can't believe what Tip yelled at me today about or what Reagan said about Tip or Tip said about Reagan. I wanted to write it down. And it's a great story. And I began to realize that. And what's interesting is not that how about this for a surprising story? Two Irish guys fought. <laughs> that's not news. <laughs> the Notre Dame mascot is this little guy fighting, you know? that's The fighting Irish is not a big story. But the idea that these two guys in their 70s, because it was their final act, it's not just that they could talk, it's that they knew this was the big time for both of them and the last time. They knew that it wasn't good enough to give speeches or yell at each other, but they had accomplished something in life. And this was their chance in their 70s to do something. And even though Reagan was an anti-government guy and Tip was a pro-government guy and Tip was, a, was against a lot of the aspects of our Latin American policy, he would stick with Reagan on a lot of things because he thought the country had to be united. And Reagan was not a right-wing president. He was a conservative president. And the difference was Tip. Tip kept him from being a right-wing president. He made him into a conservative president. And in a good two-party system, that's what happens. The other party tempers the other party. You keep them honest, you keep them temperate, you make them more moderate. You don't just try to sabotage them like we do today. Today is all about sabotage and filibusters and phony filibusters. I mean, this guy Ted Cruz can't even do a filibuster right. <laughs> I'll get to him. He is a piece of work, this guy. And I don't think he has any historic memory of the McCarthy period, or he wouldn't be trying to imitate it. And I'll prove it. All he did was ask Chuck Hagel, a moderate Republican, how do we know you weren't taking 200,000 bucks from the North Koreans? You don't talk like that in America unless you want to be Joe McCarthy. And I challenged him on that personally, face-to-face one day. You don't accuse another person of being a communist agent and still call yourself an American, just for the fun of it, just to make your point. Go see Advise and Consent again. It's still a great movie. The bad guy in it was a left-wing McCarthy, it's just as bad on both sides, Ackerman. George Grizard played him. I hope they do to him, the, the Ted what they did to that guy in the movie. Stop talking to the guy. Stop listening to him. But what I discovered in going back over my notes and going back over history was something phenomenal. That after the arguments, and these guys would actually argue when nobody was watching which I love. Tip and Reagan would argue philosophy in the back room with nobody else there. They'd point fingers at each other, and, and, and Reagan would say, the unemployed don't want to work. And Tip said, where do you get that nonsense from? You know, what magazines you get that out of? And, and he would fight back and forth about Social Security and why it was important. Reagan never really liked Social Security. About Medicare, Reagan didn't like that. But Reagan eventually saw that he had to be there. Social Security was the third rail of American politics. Leave it alone. People like it. George Will said, the Americans are conservatives. They want to conserve the New Deal. (laughs) (laughs) It's not complicated. People, what's the biggest fear of Ted Cruz and company? That the Health Care Act will become popular. If they were convinced it was going to be a disaster, they would let it wait, let it cook, And a year from now, they'd say, we'll relieve you of that. Even Cruz said this January, my biggest fear is it will become sugar, and they'll become addicted to it. That's when he was honest at the beginning of the year. Now he's out there saying, I'm saving you from the harm of of, of Obamacare. By the way, I've insisted with my producers, we call it the President's Healthcare Plan. We call him the President. No more Obama. Every trick they do. No more Obama. There are very um, human stories in my book. By the way, buy the book. I know it's the free library, but break your rule. <laughs> buy the book. Pass it around. Uh, there's some great stories. I'm not going to give it all away tonight, but there's a couple stories that just get to me. When I hear about them, I sometimes cry when I tell these stories. So when Reagan is shot and he's in the hospital and, and uh, they let tip in first. Because in those days, there was protocol and class in American politics. They let the opposition leader in first. Of course, they did it because Nancy Reagan found out that Strom Thurmond had snuck in and was bothering her poor husband who was barely alive. We call, of course you know Strom's nickname in Washington is Sperm Thurmond. He's been known to inseminate at a very late age. And it's true, it's true. But he sneaks into the old saggy snuck in there. And, uh, and uh, Mrs. Reagan had no reason to think he deserved that sort of charm. So she, put, uh, she called Jim Baker up and said, make sure nobody sees my husband until he's ready to see anybody. And so they put, it was like the Godfather scene. Watching. One of my favorite scenes ever is the Godfather hospital scene. Watching uh, that in the restaurant scene, of course. Watching, uh, watching over the old man. So finally they decide to let the speaker in. Because he was the head of the opposition, he's second in line to the presidency, and they wanted to show respect, even in a quiet way without any advertisement, their respect for the American system. So, if a guy was in there and watched what happened, the speaker, this big guy, my boss, 300-pound guy, 6'3, comes in the door and he's kind of wary of where he is, and he goes over and sees the president. He waves to this only, only other fellow in the room, and he walks over to the president's bed. He kneels down on both knees, he holds Reagan's two hands. And, and Reagan says, thanks for coming, Tip. He was groggy with all the drugs and everything. And he said, uh, they, sang, they, uh, they actually sat and recited these two old guys, the uh, 23rd Psalm together. It's an amazing story, really. The Lord is my shepherd. And I did my due diligence. I checked with his daughter of Tips, who's a friend of mine, Susan. I said, did he know that? Did he really know that whole prayer? And he said, yeah, Dad knew that prayer. So I was doing my checking. But then he kissed him on the forehead and he said, I don't want to keep you awake. So there's a really nice little moments like that in the book. Like Another great moment is when Brian Gumbel was still doing the Today Show. And his um, cold open, that's what we call on television, the cold open is when you don't say anything, there's no da-da-da-da, you just start talking at 7 o'clock in the morning. And Brian, who is still a very popular guy, said, uh, at this hour, a bipartisan delegation is in Moscow meeting with the new Soviet leader. They're carrying with him a message from the president saying he wants to meet with Mikhail Gorbachev. The delegation is being led by Speaker of the House Thomas P. Tip O'Neill. And he said it without affect or irony or novelty because as recently as 1985, it wasn't considered odd for the opposition leader to represent the president overseas. Can you imagine it today? Can you imagine the president sending Boehner over to meet Putin? It would be, what is going on? But in those days, there was a sense of, uh, of, of patriotism at the bottom line. And not only did the speaker do that, but he made sure when Reagan met with uh, Gorbachev at. Um, in fact, a great conversation went on between them. Gorbachev said, Well, thank you for delivering the message and representing the president. And Tip said, Well, actually, I'm the opposition. And Gorbachev said, What's that? <laughs> he, he wasn't familiar with that, that notion. And Tiff had the best answer. He said, it it means we don't disagree on everything. Which, uh, in other words, we agree on our country. And he said, he's going to represent our country here, not me. And uh, he's our president. And I do think the man, although we've disagreed over SDI and MX, he really does want to reduce the number of nuclear weapons. Which is a great irony, because Reagan was always a cold warrior. But like Jack Kennedy and other people I've studied, their biggest fear as president is to ever having to use nuclear weapons. Because you think about it. And Reagan said, why should we punish a whole country like the Russians because their leaders and our leaders can't get things figured out. Why should a whole country die because the leaders can't work it out? So despite, the, you know, Reagan, beyond his right-wing-ism and many things, uh, was very... His son Ron's a friend of mine. As you know, he's on my show all the time. And Ron's a big lib. And, and he said, my dad just couldn't stand the idea of nuclear weapons. He hated mutual assured destruction. He thought it was a terrible doctrine and a moral doctrine that we would blow up another country if they did the wrong thing. And so... He he told uh, the Democrats when he got back, I don't want any fighting over defense spending when Reagan's over there. Here was his phrase, I want him to be able to pick up the check. He wants him to be able to negotiate when he's over there. And then when he went to Reykjavik, Tip told the, uh, uh, you know, Ron Dellums, the big liberal, anti-war guy, and my friend Eddie Mark, he's now a congressman, they were crying together because these two guys knew that they could have passed a nuclear uh, freeze resolution on the floor And they pulled it because they didn't want to embarrass Reagan when he was talking to Gorbachev and ending the Cold War. And there's a lot of that kind of patriotism behind the scenes I was able to find. And it makes me very happy to know that not only did these guys who disagreed on practically everything were able to work out the fact that they were human beings, which is something you forget in Washington, and also that they were patriots together. And in so many ways, what I liked about them is they would argue like over... Well, Tip got beaten pretty bad in 81 over the tax cuts, but he made sure that there was going to be a vote on all Reagan's bills. He said, I'm not here to obstruct. He carried, 54, he carried 44 states. He carried Massachusetts. He's going to get his votes. Because there was something in the old days, one of the wonderfully unwritten aspects of American politics is the cultural aspect. Nobody wrote the word honeymoon down in the Constitution. But for many, most of our centuries in our history, we would say, if you get elected president, damn it, you're entitled to your day in court. If the people pick you, they only get a president who's allowed to try at least to get his program through without sabotage or filibusters or anything else or any of the games that go on, the Mickey Mouse that goes on. So he gained the vote. Tip's motive was not only to avoid being an obstructionist, but he wanted to make sure that Reagan took the heat. He wanted Reagan to get his program and then take the heat for what was going on with the economy if it didn't work. So in other words, he wanted the man to be responsible. He wanted to be the leader of the country, whether he liked it or not. He wanted him to take the heat. In the second year Reagan was president, he knew he'd overdone it. Even he knew he'd overdone it with tax cuts and defense increases, the voodoo economics, that Bush called it, and he passed the biggest revenue bill. The third year, Reagan knew he better not touch Social Security again. They put through a wonderful Social Security saving bill, which was basically uh, torqued, toward taxing rich people and making sure that people who really need Social Security got it, and got it forever. And it's never been questioned since. These two guys did this. And then in the third year, they passed the best tax reform bill ever, which was 28% top rate, 28% top rate, and no more loopholes, and equality between earned income and capital gains income. Liberals have always wanted that and they got it. No more lower rates for cap gains. And so they did a lot of good things together. They did the secret deal on on Northern Ireland. Tip wrote a letter to the president saying, I'm never going to tell anybody ever, as long as I live, that I asked you for help with Maggie Thatcher. But you're buddies with her, and you can change things around in Northern Ireland. And they did it. And that led to the Good Friday Accords, which I covered. And on the the other issues of the Cold War, Tip did play a hand. So all this went on behind the scenes. And I wanted to, to write about it because I think that's what separates us. How did I write this book? primary sources, and it was a lot of work. Kathy used to say, you're in that chair again. Because I sat in this chair in my office upstairs at home. I'd get up before dawn, I'd I'd basically go to sleep when I fell asleep. That was my ritual. It's not very healthy, but that's what I did. And I would take all Reagan's diaries, which are fantastic. I would take tips, transcripts. I got a hold of a kid who had secretly transcribed every word Tip spoke at every morning press conference. I took my journal especially for 1982. And I went to all the deadline reporting, which in this country, whatever you think of the press, I got to tell you, the major press, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the news section of the Wall Street Journal is accurate. Every quote I checked with my transcripts and my memory and the speaker's transcripts and Reagan's diary, and I put together every episode in this book based upon hard primary data. I also took Hedrick Smith, the great reporter for the New York Times. He interviewed me back then Interviewed tip interviewed Kirk O'Donnell, the chief of staff, or rather the chief counsel, and we were, he, I was able to put together my own words from back then, because you do change, your memory does adjust over time. And I wanted to make sure it was exactly fresh like back in the 80s, what I was saying back then, and I was able to put that together. And so I have the book, and it's done, and I want you to buy it. So I've looked at what's going on lately here, and I I just think the book is a perfect uh, antidote, as Judy said, because look at it. The the craziness of the right, it's not even logical. I keep thinking, if you want to lower government spending, why didn't you make that the issue of the shutdown or that the issue of the debt ceiling? Why didn't you ask for lower spending on certain things? Why didn't you go for the guy's baby, for the thing that's going to go down in history as his great achievement? It's like you calculated a way to make him look strong. You made Obama look strong. Nobody's given up their baby. Everyone's going to fight for their baby. This is the craziest kidnapping in history. Usually you grab the baby and ask for the money. They grab the money and ask for the baby. It's crazy. Nobody's, you're going to all, We're all heroes if somebody comes for our baby. What are you going to do? Here. And then he said, I'll just cut it in half. Like King Solomon knew who that real mother was in that case. Yeah, the one who wants to cut it in half is not the real mother. Oh, we just want to defund it. Just cut it off for a year so he can improve it. You kidding me? They want to kill it in its crib. That was their goal. Because that's their weird way of denying that Obama was ever president. They want to put an asterisk next to him like Barry Bonds. Well, he wasn't actually hitting all those home runs. He didn't actually become president. We would never have a president named Barack Hussein Obama. That couldn't happen, so let's make it official. He didn't do anything. These guys are unstoppable. They want to, make, they want to erase him from the history books. And it kills them. He got reelected. Guess what? They keep talking about the real America. This guy, Ted Cruz, it's great to be back. Guess what, Ted? The real America elected Obama. Break your heart. The country voted for him. And they don't want to hear that. He says it's great to be back. He said the other day, it's great to be back in America. And then one of his clownish friends put out this statement the other day. They want to get rid of Massachusetts, Connecticut, New York, and California, get them out of the country. Well, they haven't asked to secede. It's your characters down there in Texas that keep talking secession. It's weird. It is weird. So I wanted to write a book about how conservatives can actually be useful Americans. And I'm not saying anybody, anybody has to like Ronald Reagan's policies, but I think you'd like, when you read the book, the way he did his politics. And there's a bunch of things in there. First of all, back when I worked in politics, you didn't have to deny you were friends with somebody you disagreed with. It used to be, you know... Kennedy had friends on the other side, a lot of them. Uh, Tip had a lot of friends on the other side. Uh, They played cards together at night so they'd stay away from women. Tip used to say there's three things you can do in Washington. You can chase women, you can drink, which go together, or you can play cards, which doesn't go with either of the other two. And so he always played cards all night. In fact, one time I was driving up Independence Avenue with him one day, and he said, many a morning I've seen that flag flying from the Capitol building (laughs) after one of his all-nighters. I one time took a speech to him when he was... uh, with his big Irish sweater on, ready to spend the night at the card game. That was his idea. He just wanted to win stuff. Reagan, on the other hand, was a real loner. Uh, Reagan really liked Tip. Uh, Ron's told me that. He's very fond of him. He didn't really know characters like Tip, and he really liked him. Although he said he's a real pal, he can be your friend and then he can turn on you <laughs> the minute you go after one of his programs, one of the poor people programs. And he once said that he's like a light switch. You can, he can be your best buddy. The next thing you know, he's a piranha, which is, which is tip. I worked for him. He was like that. I think the difference is respect for the voter. The reason we have a honeymoon period in politics are used to is because you want to respect the voter's decision. If they're going to pick a guy you don't like, still he deserves to be what he wants to be as president. There want to be a vote on that. And be, the games with Obama, the president, the first day he gets elected, in fact, Mitch McConnell's out there saying, my number one goal in life is to get this guy out of the White House. Not something conservative like cutting taxes or a stronger military, but get rid of this person. And then you find out there was a meeting with Newt Gingrich of all people. Talk about it. Freddy Krueger. He kind of, I mean, uh, the, the guy keeps coming back. CNN hired a brilliant idea, Crossfire, with Newt Gingrich. Boy, they're brilliant over there. Who hired? You get paid for that kind of programming? God, is Newt available? Oh, I'm not sure. Anyway, and he's back. Newt used to say to people, keep your wife back in the district. Well, that's good for marriages. And it's and it the worst thing that happened. His whole idea, he was basically able to do anything for political purposes. Reagan would... Uh, would do nice things. I mean, Reagan would like, he, well, he came to president, he didn't know anybody in Washington. he, he uh, first job he ever had in Washington was president. And he, um, he uh, would do things like, his diary is wonderful to read. Thanks to Douglas Brinkley. We know the diary and how his brain worked. Uh, it'd be stuff, family stuff. It's great to see Dora came and I mean, it's great Doria came and uh, Ron's visiting this weekend. And he'd go through the Bloomingdales or whoever they were who were visiting. And then he'd go through the weather I mean, you're hard to believe the guy's presence. On, He was going through the weather every night. It was cold today, too cold. I can't wait to get back to Mommy. That's Mrs. Reagan. I can't wait to get to the ranch. Uh, basic kind of guy at his age. I think we all become homers when it, we reach a certain age. We want to get home at night. And we want to be with our wife and uh, be happy. It ain't complicated. But he would do things like, this is the first time I saw Reagan in action. I go over to the uh, house employee's Cafeteria. It isn't much. It's the Longworth Building Cafeteria. It used to, it's right over where the swimming pool used to be, but they put a cafeteria on top of this, and it's nothing special. It's, they call it the Plastic Palace, you know. Well, Reagan's there. I had gone for the night of the gym dinner. The guys who do the rubdowns at the house gym and run the house gym to keep these guys in shape uh, every year they collect the tips they get all year, and they have a dinner for all the members of Congress. And nobody knows about this thing, the gym dinner. It's just a quiet little thing where the guys, mostly guys, come in and they have a guy's kind of dinner. They have New York steaks, uh, uh, baked potato with butter, butter, and uh, a, a bottle of beer. It's a bottle. You don't get a glass. You take the b- bottle of beer to your table. It's a sit at somebody's next, just go sit some, next to somebody. And maybe, and you get some apple pie on a moat afterwards. All the things you're not supposed to eat. And all the guys eat it together and all they do is come in and eat and talk to it all so Javit shows up and Mac Mathias shows up. All the guys have been out of office for a while. John Lindsay, they all come back and just to hang out with the guys and feel like they're part of something that got elected to the House. They're very proud of that. Well, George Bush Senior was very proud of the fact that he got elected to the House. It wasn't easy for him. It was the thing he really got elected on his own too. So he he obviously brought Reagan that night. And I'm watching, there's Reagan in a sort of a glen plaid suit. It's kind of like, I know what happened. Bush said it's kind of a club event. So Reagan's sort of dressed in his club clothes. And, he, and he's there, and all Reagan's doing is shaking hands and getting his picture taken with all these Democrats. And I go, I can see what's happening here. They want their picture taken with him to take home to their offices and put in their newsletters. There's no TV cameras here. There's no newspapers here. They just want to meet the guy. He's a movie star. And, uh, and I thought, wow, this guy has got this place figured. He knows how to be a charming leader of the country. So Reagan goes back to his, uh, his diary that night. And he writes, stop by dinner, gym dinner, in quotes, 6.30 tonight. Carter never went. <laughs> he was very proud that Carter had never done this because Jimmy Carter was so serious. He was my boss too. He would go, why would I do this? This has no logical purpose. Why would I go to where the guys run the gym or meeting with... What, what am I doing here? It's not intellectual. It has nothing to do with policy, but Reagan knew. Show up at their event. It'll show respect for them, and they'll remember that you cared about them as individuals, and it's, a, it's all going to help, and it does help. They also, in the old days, besides these little courtesies, uh, Jim Baker would come up and see the Speaker secretly in his back office to tell him what was coming. In other words, I got to give you a heads-up tip on what's coming next week, Mr. Speaker. These courtesies in the old days really worked so that people could work with each other. Now I think politicians they are more honest than they used to be. As Tibbs said, the people are better, they're more highly educated, but the system's worse. He said that before he died, because they don't know how to work with each other. Now part of that is they just don't talk to each other. Uh, Bob Michael, the Republican leader from Illinois, a wonderful guy. He's 90-some years old. He's still in Washington. Clean as a whistle. And Rostin Kaske, who had the personal ethical problems, would drive every Thursday night to Chicago from Washington. And this is before they had the jet travel, which has really killed them in a way because it's got them all homes one weekend, back and forth. They don't know each other. 14-hour trip. Four congresspeople used to take this trip together every weekend. Two of the guys slept in rotation on a mattress. It was a station wagon they had. And they'd lean the, second, the back seat forward. And the two guys are asleep, and The other two guys are up front. One guy keeping the other guy awake. This is how they used to be. Con- you think you might bond a little on those trips? That's when guys start talking about their kids. They're worried about the third kid, maybe the second kid. And oh, this guy's been, a- I'm worried about, about your marriage. This is when guys start to talk. And those relationships were real. Tip's best friends were Sil so conti, a Republican and Bob Michael and Jerry Ford. He once said to Jerry Ford when Nixon was about to resign the next day, Ford called him up and said, I'm going to be president tomorrow. And Tip said, isn't it funny? We're best friends now and a year and a half I'll be kicking your butt all across the country. And, 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 and that's how they operated. They knew how to live to multitask, to be politicians and human beings and also patriots. It isn't that complicated. And today it's just out in that warfare. Another strike I saw personally of, uh, and I don't want to be schmaltzy about this, but there's an element of schmaltz in it. Um, I love Thursday nights working for the Speaker, because it always meant Thursday was the last big vote of the week, and he gave a 15-minute closer, and Michael gave one, and Jim Wright gave one, and everybody came out, just like in the movies. Everybody's in their seats. And um, after it was over, one guy had been fighting red-faced, and another guy across the aisle, a a Republican guy, and a Democratic guy, had been fighting the whole time on the floor. And he walked over as the whole place is emptying like a vacuum cleaner, because everybody's going home to get their plane rides. And he walked across and I just had to be standing there on on the floor of the house. And this guy came over to the other guy that had been yelling at him. And said, what are you doing this weekend? And then he said, say hello to your wife for me. It took about a second, but it reestablished the fact they're in this together, that they're not just SOBs, that they didn't come here to be SOBs. They came to come together and get to know the other side, just like we did in Philadelphia, back in the 18th century, when they worked, they went to the taverns at night in Philly when they wrote the Constitution. I know it's divinely inspired, but it actually was written by people. (laughs) I hate to tell the Mormons, but it was written by people after a few drinks probably. And they actually did get together in the taverns and work things out. I was just up in Philly this week, where I grew up, and I actually saw the day to day decisions they made, and they had to make human beings had to make those decisions in human ways and they had a lot of they made some big dis- mistakes like the, the slavery thing, the three fifths and all that, but it was the way to get the union together at the time and they worked things out. Congress means coming together it means meet, meeting the other person and finding common ground or compromise what 's missing today all those things there 's Six things that I think could improve our country right now in the midst of this mayhem. One is respect the voter. Stop calling him Obama. Call him the President of the United States. That's a good start. The President deserves to have his, his legislation considered without games and also to be respected once it's enacted into law. By the way, it's not the Obama bill. It's the Affordable Care Act. Respect for other people's offices. Now, we have a whole problem with apportionment and gerrymandering, but still, I think members of Congress, especially members of the Senate, are United States senators. They're not just senators from Texas. They're United States senators. They're supposed to reflect, generally, the opinion of the country, not just gee whiz what my people on the right wing told me to do from back there, the right wing of the right wing of the right wing party in Texas, just the next guy at the next Tea Party, that's not your party. That's certainly not the country. And I don't think it's even your party anymore. You look at the polls. How many Republicans are Tea Partiers? A very small minority. And that minority is wagging the dog every day. I think the worst, what these congressmen on the right are afraid of is not John Boehner. They're not afraid of him. He's sort of a Jack Lemmon character in the movies. So he's having a hard day. Uh, (Laughter) But they're afraid of that guy who's had a few drinks at the next tea party meeting sitting in the back row who yells, you sold us out. I saw you with the president the other day. You were with him. You were standing in the same room with him. You touched him. It's crazy. There's a guy this week said, I was 10 feet from the president, and I felt sick. This is a U.S. congressman. Or this story the other day saying, I can't even stand looking at you. Or you lie in the middle of the State of the Union. We've never seen this before. Is it ethnic? That's a good bet. You can't prove anybody's heart. Tip used to say you can't tell what's in another man's heart, but it's not a bad bet. It wouldn't happen with a white person. I wouldn't think it's hard to figure that baby, but you can never prove it, but it's there over and over the birthers. This guy this week that said in North Carolina, this state rep said, an elected official said the president, um, he's not a traitor. He's very loyal to Kenya. (laughs) I thought what a great joke that is. It's not even funny aren't jokes supposed to be funny? That one wasn't. And Donald Trump, who does have some brains, he's been playing this card. So what's it about? And you know, this isn't really respect for office, the President of the United States. Tip always called Reagan the President of the United States, even if you disagree with him. He said it over and over again. Compromise, you don't have to agree on hardly anything, but you can always compromise. If the Democrats want to do something on a corporate tax reform that raises a few bucks by plugging loopholes, and the Republicans want to do something on Medicare with the providers, there may be a combination, they could both do it. It's possible you can, you can reform entitlement and also reform the tax structure at the same time. It's possible. You don't have to agree on the harder challenge is to find common ground. I saw that Patty Murray, the senator from Washington, who's the uh, chair of the budget committee, and, and uh, Paul Ryan, the house chair, they're talking about finding common ground. That's very hard to find common ground, but you can compromise. Compromise is, well, some people say, here's an orange. Uh, Common ground would be to cut it in half. Each person gets a half. Now, one person might want the juice in it to make juice. The other one wants the rind to make something else, to bake with it. So find out what the other person wants and what you want. Give them what they absolutely need and get from them what you absolutely need. That's how you work it out. It's called negotiation. It's why these guys are elected. In fact, it's their one talent. It's the one talent we expect of public officials, lawmakers, is the ability to make law. Nothing else. You don't have to jump high in the air. You don't have to play ball. You don't have to be strong. Just be able to make law, and that means negotiation. So all we're asking you guys to do is to do it, to do what you're elected to do. And I think the key thing that's missing today is something we see in marriage or anywhere else is uh, the ability to talk and to listen. I mean, when I go back through the transcripts and the uh, diaries of Ronald Reagan, it's funny. Because he'll argue about Tip and he'll say, I don't understand that guy. Besides, he won't even listen. It's like a marriage, you know. He's like, he's like going to bed at night saying, that guy won't even listen to me. You know, they're fighting it out, but they would fight it out. And I think it's a better time. I think we can learn from our history. We've got a great culture of politics. There's a reason why American democracy and self-government has worked since we have not missed an election since 1788. We have always had elections, every two years. We have never blown it. We've never had the Fifth Republic like in France, just the one we started with, the first one. We still got that one. We've never had a military coup. We've never screwed it up. We know how to do the mechanisms. What we've forgotten is the culture that goes with the mechanisms, the understanding between two sides that, you know what? There ain't ever gonna be a one-party system in this country. We had it so briefly Uh, with FDR because of the Great Depression for one term and then it was basically bipartisan again. And we saw it after Kennedy was shot for just about a year and a half with the voting rights and the civil rights and Medicare. And then because of inflation by 66, the country was bipartisan again. The norm in America is one party maybe having the House, one party having the Senate, perhaps the presidency, and you got to learn how to make it work or we aren't going to have a self-government anymore. It has to work. There is no alternative to compromise. And when the conservatives say, I don't like the word compromise, well, what is it that you prefer? What do you prefer? Dictation? Dictatorial government? One party rule? You prefer the Tea Party rule? They should rule us? God help us. Nobody wants that. Maybe the Tea Party people do because they haven't thought about a government enough. My concern is that Ted Cruz and his McCarthyite tactics and the stuff that's been going on is a real aberration. I think we've got to get back to a reasonable debate, reasonable compromise and talking to each other. And I think we can do it if everybody reads my book. Thank, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. So uh, my voice carries pretty well. <laughs> I've been working on it for years. Kathy, how'd I do? Good, thank you. Uh, I need that. All men need that. Um, just ask questions? Yes, sir.
2: How did Tim O'Neill deal with the left within his office? I'm not
1: saying it's he's No, it is. Uh, he was very, um, you know, this Hastert rule that you have to have half your party with you before you do anything. He didn't operate like that. He was quite willing. He didn't like the feeling, but when he was supporting our troops in Lebanon, even after the, the barracks was blown up. He hated it, but he stuck there until he found out Reagan was ready to pull the plug himself. Uh, he had an advantage that Denny Hastert doesn't, not Hastert, but now uh, Boehner doesn't have. Tip's gut was liberal. So if his gut wanted to do something like safe social security with the way he did it, with taxing wealthier people, he knew the liberals would like that because he was one. So you're talking about the left in the Democratic. He was sort of Hubert Humphrey left, meaning... He believed in government, helping people who had needs. Poor people, the kid didn't want to go to college. He, when he thought Pell Grants, he thought the kid had, couldn't afford to go to BC or BU or UMass. Uh, that's what he thought. He knew the persons. And so his liberalism wasn't interest groups, pressure groups, phony, stuff like that. He knew the cases because of, he'd been in the state legislature since the 30s. He'd a lot of time dealing with people with problems. So, um, Let's be honest, it was hard to get to his left, (laughs) you know? He's a liberal, he's proud of it. Uh, But I think it made it easier for him just like it made it easier for Reagan. The beauty of those two guys is when they spoke, they spoke for parties. The trouble with Boehner, who's not a bad guy, is that he doesn't really represent his party anymore. He represents the Republican party of 30, 40 years ago, Jerry Ford. He's a regular business guy, you know? He just wants to get through the day and get some golf in. He's just a regular guy, get through the night. He's not sitting there with some ideological dream. His dream is relief. That's what I... Look at him. He's crying. He's just not happy. They're just beating the hell out of him. He's looking behind him at Eric Cantor and Kevin McCarthy, figuring, how long are they with me? I don't know whether he thinks they're with him long. Maybe they're probably with him, but... He's got these Tea Party people that it, he has a word for them. I was at a Catholic event working on, on, on helping poor kids in Washington get a good education and he used the term to describe those guys. With the cardinal there, you could not believe. I, nobody went viral with it, but it was not a term of endearment. <laughs> yes. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I'll, I'll get you next, ma- ma'am. I'll get you next. Do you There's, believe that there could be a viable third party? In the United States well, there's going to be one in Virginia, I think, uh, next to, after this election. I think at, at that I think they're so upset with Cuccinelli on the right that they 're going to vote for that libertarian. I bet he gets fifteen points. I think Terry's going to win the thing pretty handily by five or seven, but I think there's going to be a big vote for that third because they cuccinelli's just too much. The thing about a third party is would it be a party of moderate Republicans or would it be a party of far righters I think the far right is trying to take over the Republican Party. And normally what happens, the Whigs go when the Republicans show up. So what happens normally is the creation of a third party is the first evolutionary stage in the elimination of one of the two major parties. Because our system is based on having 270 electoral votes to be president and getting 218 votes in the House. You have to get a majority. So I think so much of our system is based on a party having enough strength to have a majority. So it's going to be very hard. So what you'll have is even if you form something like the Bull Moose or the progressives, they'll end up being a coalition with one of the two parties. Like in Israel, we have a whole bunch of parties all in one coalition, the, the, uh, the Kud bloc, Or in Germany, we always have a coalition uh, with the Christian Democrats and the other group. Uh, so I don't think it'll be significant. But I, now I think the Republican Party has a, is in a civil war right now. And it will be decided by who wins the nomination next time. If... If the guy who I think wins it, he will lose the general election. I think Rand Paul's going to win. I think that party's really moving to the right. And maybe somebody like Scott Walker could still win it, but I don't think a guy like Chris Christie, he's in search of a political party right now. There's none available for him. He's the middle of the roader. The Republican Party's a right-wing party and moving further right and getting angrier all the time. And guess what? Chris Christie isn't angry. I think he's a happy guy. And look, what was the most popular picture of the last election? Him walking the beach with the president. The absolute most popular picture of the year. It showed that we can work together. We, our parents were having a good time together. Every kid likes that picture. It's true. Yes? Mr. Matthews,
0: I'm from Philly, full disclosure. I'm raised when you were raised, prep. So
1: pronounce the word W-A-T-E-R. Philly. What is it? Pronounce the word W A T E R. Water. Water, of course. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, You're a, from Philly.
0: Uh, the first it's time water. Heard, it's not the water. the first time I heard you, I didn't know you were from there, and I heard all these phrases and words. I'm thinking, oh, my gosh. Then I realized, oh, he must be from Philly. My question is, did you interview President Obama, and
1: are you going to interview
0: President he Obama? Is,
1: this is how he operates. He's a loner. You know, I'm very pro-Obama and all the big issues. I like him. I've said it. He doesn't give interviews to anybody at MSNBC. We never see him hardly. I saw him three or four times. I, three, I was like this with him three or four times. He's always very friendly, very hip, very cool. He has a nice line or two and uh, very relaxed. He's very light as a presence. He's just there. He's a regular person. But he's never, I've been asking for interviews with him forever. And I can't get one. Maybe he knows my ways, but I mean, I, I, it is hardball. It's not going to be fun. It's not going to be a regular anchor man interviewing him with the obvious questions and no follow-up. I might actually listen to his questions and see a little opportunity there. But I get the briefings, Kathy points out, I'm always invited to the backroom briefings before the State of the Union Address with the other anchors. So they're, they're nice to go to. And he's very commanding at these things. He, you know, I watched a couple of them. Now, this will sound like I'm sucking up, but the fact is when I watch him at these briefings answering every question in the world, commanding in scope and depth every issue, I say this guy should be our president. That's, what he hits you. that's how you react to him in the back room. He seems to be the guy we'd want to make as our president. It's all there. But he isn't a backslapper, He's not like Tip or even the way Reagan became. Or he's a loner and I think that's hurt him. I'm not sure where, but I think part of politics is being like Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton goes to every party. He's the last one to leave and, and, uh, and, he, and he likes people. I mean, Bill Clinton even likes his contributors, which is so unusual in politics. He likes the guys who give him the money. Nobody likes the guy who gives you the money because they think they own you. I was very helpful in the last campaign. I know that. Nobody wants that guy around. No, I've been helpful in the past. Nobody wants to meet that. Get out of here. Give me your money and go away. I'll make you, I'll make you ambassador to something, but I don't want to hang out with you. It's all true. Yes, sir. Well... He's up against extraordinarily negative opponents. Um, they um, they want to erase him. And being black, he can't come out and be grouchy about it. He can't come out and get steamy. I think that's all in his historic notion of what he has to be. He can't. Every time he shows any favoritism because of ethnicity, like with Henry Gates or with Trevon Martin. You know, he's walking a very dangerous line there. He can't go too far. He will do it because he's courageous enough to do it. But I think he knows this is a very narrow path he's walking. He's got to be careful. And uh, whereas the other guys call, can call him anything they feel like calling him. They, they, the stuff they say about him is the disrespect is it's palpable. And, uh, and the guys at the top, like Mitch McConnell, who is smart and respectable... And, and Boehner, who doesn't seem like an evil person, refused to call these be- bastards out. They won't call them out and say, that doesn't work here. You know, back in the 50s, Bill Buckley, whether you disagree with or not, he outlawed anti-Semitism in the Republican conservative movement. He said, we will not put up with it. And it had always been there before. This America 1st stuff, it was okay to be anti-Semitic. He said, none of that is acceptable. And he personally knocked it out of the system. So you can be a right-winger and Jewish, and it's not an odd but before that, it was odd. And he personally said, these guys aren't courageous like this. McCain stood up to that woman and said, he's not an Arab. You know, he didn't say the right answer, which was, not that there's anything wrong with it, but he didn't, he, he could have gone further, but he did say, she's not an Arab. And she was stunned. Somebody actually said, no, I'm not going to pander to you like all these other guys do. And they all do it. They say these horrible things about him being from another country, and they know that's not true. This weird conspiracy notion that somehow this white woman from Kansas said, I think I want my son to be president, so I'm going to go find some guy, he's not really that reliable, from Kenya, I'm going to, I'm going to go to Kenya and marry the guy, and then he's going to split, and I'm going to make sure his name is Hussein. and, and then I'm going to go to Hawaii and raise him out there on an island, and I don't have a nickel to my name, he's going to grow up a genius, he's going to go to Columbia Harvard Law, he's going to be head of the law review, because this is all part of my plan. These people are insane. It's it's what they think. (laughs) Yes.
0: You have, as far as the media goes, you've got Fox on the right, you've got MSNBC, there you go, on the left.
1: There's some people on Fox that are worthy of giving some time to. Uh, O'Reilly is a cranky Irish guy, okay? I don't think he gets orders from anybody. I think whatever you think of him, after all, he's getting... He's getting inspiration from the Holy Spirit right now. Right. I mean, I, I would, right. I would, this guy's like Isaiah or somebody. He's, he's like, don't take that path home with the Virgin Mary. Go the other route. I mean, this is right out of the Bible, these, these dreams he's having. I mean, this guy is getting a special deal. All right? I wouldn't confuse him with Hannity, who just picks up the usual crib card and does all the right-wing pandering. I think there's a difference. And I do think uh, uh, Megan Kelly... Keep her eye on her. I think she's going to say pretty straight. She stood up to Carl Rove on election night. I was impressed with that. Uh, I think Shep Smith, I think Brett Baer, are, are obviously they lean a certain direction, but they're credible people. Uh, some of these people in the morning are a joke. But uh, on our side, I think we're all a little different. I think that a lot of people in the daytime are completely straight journalists. They don't have an opinion to offer. I don't know where Tamron Hall stands politically. I don't know where we're, uh, you know, uh, Andrew Mitchell. I never got a peep out of her politically. Uh, you know where I stand because I tell you every night.
0: And how? Uh,
1: I don't hide it under yeah. a bushel basket.
2: <laughs> right. Well, actually, my, my question. And that's
1: why people watch us to find out what we think because they find it interesting. A lot of people read George Will for years. In fact, he's still got a good con once in a while or crown hammer because you want to know what he's saying. It's interesting. Krugman's a little more predictable. Maureen Dowd is always fascinating. Because she's always like a mosquito, just hitting some guy in power. She always knows the president, what he doesn't want to hear, and she writes it. She just goes right in on like a vzz, zoom. She goes, <laughs> and she's done it to Carter, and she's done it to everybody since she started writing that but column.
0: But my question, actually, I didn't get to it yet. <laughs> Let me just finish. We were talking about the media, TV. I wanted to go to radio and ask why you've got Rush over here. What happened to Air America? What
2: happened to everything? on the like, Where are they? I mean, there's a, there's you a, got uh, a Democratic uh, uh, administration. A radio,
1: whereas, radio. Know. Look, first of all, I think it's divided up. And, and if you're progressive or liberal, liberal's is a good word. But let's think about your liberals. You'll notice most movies are pretty liberal. They, they're, they, they're people are secular. They don't go to church all the time. It's kind of like a, 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 a you know, like the American president, Rob Reiner kind of movies. You know, they're very liberal without saying so. They just are in the point of view. They're very pro marriage equality. Uh, they're not overly traditional in their religion. The, the characters aren't. Um, my, my, uh, primetime television is pretty secular. It's it's liberal in its values. You know that. Most of it, a lot of gay uh, uh, characters on television today being very prominent and likable. And everything seems to be very positive towards the liberal t- direction in the, in the major media. I think the 6.30 night news, the stuff, with, I don't know what Brian Williams' politics are. I don't know what Scott, what's his name is, you know? I don't think Scott Pelley, I don't think I know their politics. Diane used to work for Nixon. I don't know what she is. I don't think there's a big liberal push like there was years ago with Cronkite. Everybody knew Cronkite was a liberal. Howard K. Smith was a was a hawk. Uh, John Chancellor was sort of New York, tr- New York uh, Herald Tribune, sort of upper elite kind of business Republican, but with liberal sen- sentiments. Today, I think the reason radio is, is right-wing is the people who listen to the radio all day, especially when Rush is on. Rush is very smart, just like Larry King was really good in the middle of the night. You couldn't beat him. You're traveling across the country. Larry would be interviewing Don King for an hour. You couldn't turn it off. He had that cigarette voice. He was the best there was in the middle of the night. He tried daytime, nothing happened. Uh, Rush is a pro. The reason Rush is good is he he, he, he was washed out. He told me this once. He was washed out as a regular radio guy in San Francisco. It was the last market he could work in, they finally fired him. He couldn't, they said the best place to get a job was Sacramento. This is before he went big time. And he couldn't get any guests to come up to Sacramento. So he had to do it himself. So Necessity's the mother of invention. He did a three hour show with his own script. No guests. He said, guests distract you. Books or something they're selling. I wanna say what I have to say. It's worked. He's also not on in drive time. If he was on a drive time, he'd have to talk to normal people. Because normal people are in their cars in drive time. Normal people. You go to work, you, whatever your politics are, you got to get to work, and you, you got to turn the radio on. And you'll probably listen to talk to keep company in the car with you. He's not that guy. He's not a regular guy. He's a right-wing guy. And so he's on it 12 to 3, traveling salespeople, men, white guys. He's talking to them, telling them these feminazis out there, they're no good. These affirmative action people, they're no good. You're the hero. It's a support group. He supports them. He tells them they're always right. All the minorities are wrong. You're out there selling chiclets or you're selling whatever, and you're the hero of our country. And the guy working in the garage maybe, but he's, or the woman in the dinette, but he has figured out his audience is angry, they don't particularly love their jobs. Nobody respects the guy driving the salesman because it's the worst job in the world. Your kids don't know what you do. Your wife wonders where you are. And the boss is asking for a higher sales quota all the time. So you're constantly under pressure and you're not the happiest guy in the world. And Russia's saying, you're the greatest person that ever lived. It's so smart. So I haven't figured out why liberals don't work it on the radio, but I think I figured out why conservatives do. And Air America didn't make it. I don't think liberals are ready to get up every day and be miserable. They'd rather listen to music. Or, you know, I I think I listen to 60s on 6, because I never got out of the 60s, and I listen to Pops because it's my sort of elevation, you know, listening to a light uh, classical. And sometimes I listen to MS. Actually, I do listen to MS in the morning because I'm scared I'm not caught up on the news that way, and I start listening on the way in. I don't have an answer for you, except the media tends to be, the culture of our country tends to be secular and liberal, movies, primetime, and uh, the right-wing thing seems to be the compensation and radio during the daytime. It's just weird. It's, all these Rush imitators are zeros, by the way. He's the only one that can do it. They all try to be like him. They imitate him. And then there's the real haters. And I don't want to get in a fight with them because I don't get them. Mark Levin. I don't get why. And Ma- Michael Savage. What are they so mad about? Their voices are angry. Even if they said, if they read the phone book. Row! Smith, and another Smith and another Smith and damn it, another Smith they're, all, they're always angry I don't know what happened at home or something didn't happen that they hoped would I don't know these guys but I don't want to get in a fight with them either I didn't mean it, Mark uh, I don't understand it because they'll spend all day tomorrow trashing me which doesn't hurt either but it's weird Hi Chris,
2: I have, I have a microphone I Oh okay. you're the first one
1: You, you Hi. got it
2: my name is Blessing Gundan, and I have to say, my hu- I'm here because of my husband. He's a huge fan. He Thank watched you. your show when it comes on twice a day, and now it's back on once a day. But I wanted to say that, do you think all this adversity and hostility is primarily that the media is responsible for? No. Because I watch C-SPAN, and the congressmen are always so polite to one another. There's always a lot of friends, and the gentlemen here, and the gentlemen there. But for some reason, when they get on these cable shows, they become so bombastic. The language change, they become so attuned to hostility. So you're going to have to wonder, are you guys responsible? So we should censor them. Well, it's not really about censorship. It's about politeness How and, do we do and being able to speak. When somebody come on you to your show... First of all, allow them to finish talking. Allow them to finish no. making their point. No. You know, And then lower no. your voice when you talk to them. Can you I know? be
1: honest? It's basic. Res- rest- Responsibility. That's your point of view. My point of view is I want to interrupt them. Well, you, you are doing that now, so. <laughs> Look, you can follow me. You can keep up. You know what I'm doing. I've heard it all before. And they start going into the talking points. They've ignored the question. I'm not going to let them just bogart me, to use a 60s term. Um, but you're probably right, it's bad manners, but it's me. <laughs> and by the way, I don't encourage them to use bad language on my show, and the reason they don't use bad language in the house is they'd be called out of order. They're not allowed to. They've got to say the gentle lady or the gentleman, and, but it is, good, it is a good practice, and you do watch C-SPAN. How many hours do you do of C-SPAN every week? Uh, they're good. I'm okay.
2: Working. Hi, Chris. Um, I watch his show every day. I really enjoy it. Thank but anyways, I, I'm dying to find out your opinions or your thoughts on given all the character as assassination on President Obama about Hillary, if and when she becomes the president. will be next.
1: It has started. What? It has started. It started today.
2: No, no. What, what do you think this right-wing people and all these other things? Well, Dick
1: Cheney, been- who's whatever you want to call him. He's a hawk, certainly. Uh, Dick Cheney has put out the word that she said it didn't matter that people, what does it matter that four people were killed in Benghazi? She didn't say that. She said, what does it matter what the talking points were afterwards? She's never said it didn't matter that people, including her close friend Chris Stevens, was killed. But Cheney now says she said it didn't matter. you got to read this in the paper tomorrow. She com- they completely takes out a context and puts it in another context. The media, our job is to catch them which we did tonight. But they're starting on her. You know why they're starting on her? Because they don't have a candidate to beat her yet. And, uh, and she'll probably win the center because she is more centrist than the president, certainly more hawkish than the president, a notch or two. And uh, she'll get that sweet spot of working-class whites in Appalachia that Obama can't get for obvious reasons. She'll be able to grab them, add to his voters, And she'll get a decent majority. She'll get more than a plurality. She'll get a strong majority, I think. Uh, Because women like you, and women and men who support women's rights, think it's time. And there isn't any great male candidate next time that would justify uh, delaying it another four or eight years. I don't think. We will be having the book signing
0: right behind there because we know that you have... You'll be surprised at how many books were sold tonight. I'm scared, you. Do we have some more
1: questions or are we done? We were, oh, we'll do one three more. more. Yes, sir. Okay. One more. Okay.
0: He's he doing three more. Here he comes. Oh me. Run, do you think that in the long run the states that chose not to enact ACA or enlarge Medicaid will have to do something just to compete with, with other states, with neighboring states?
1: Yeah, I think we're seeing like an old Polaroid developing of the states where the states, even Kentucky with a Democratic, or Kasich who's expanding Medicaid, where you're really going to see those states succeed. And then the other states, the word's going to get out. If it works well, they'll want to get part of that. They're going to pay the price. I'm told what happened is a lot of the um, 34 states at the last minute told the government, you do it. They waited to the last minute and then said the federal government do it. So they basically caught them flat-footed. That's a game they're playing. Okay. Somebody else had a question and we'll just finish up. Thank you so much. It's both gerrymandering and segregation. The fact that minorities live in big city. My city, 85% for Obama, right? We have 13 Republican congresspeople from Pennsylvania and five Democrats, even though the state won 100,000 votes more for Democratic candidates for Congress. It's because of the way people are bunched, together. liberals live in big cities, minorities live in big cities like Pittsburgh and Philly, and those Congress people are, are elected with 85%, Chaka Fatah and Bob Brady, 85% in San Francisco, 85% in Oakland, and in Berkeley. The liberal areas of the country overdo it. So we get all these votes that matter in, in presidential elections, and electoral votes, but they don't get the count. We have 232 House ra- the districts right now, CD's, that voted against Obama. A strong majority. That somewhat explains it. And part of that is the fact that they gerrymandered after the 2010 uh, uh, census. Uh, it's just the way people live, and liberals tend to be in big cities. And, but it is gerrymandering at the edge, and it's got to be corrected. And that means vi- Democrats have got to learn to vote in off-year elections and stop just voting in presidential elections. Yeah. Yeah. Um, First-time questioner, long-time watcher. <laughs> Do you think we might be approaching a tipping point in our politics? And if so, could you speculate on what that might be? I think we're gonna see a right-wing Republican candidate for president next time. I don't think it'll be Ted Cruz. I think it's gonna be Rand Paul. I think the party will suffer a major defeat because of it, like Goldwater did. That will either teach them a lesson or it will allow the full takeover of the Republican party by the right. I do believe that Rand Paul's number one objective is to take over the party. What comes next is, is, uh, we don't know, but I think they wanna take the Republican party and turn it into a Tea Party. That's what they wanna do and they're winning. I talked to the governor of New York the other day. He said the percentage of people in that hard right is going from 10 to 20%. It's just going up, even in New York. So states like Kentucky, it worked. Pennsylvania, it won't work. But we've got Toomey, who's playing ball with that crowd now. If he gets reelected, that'll say a lot about in a purple state like Pennsylvania, you can have a real club for growth guy as its senator reelected you never know where it's going to pick up next. It, you know, it's not going to happen in California or New York or Connecticut or Jersey, but, or Maryland, <laughs> my wife points out. But the Tea Party is marching on and they're not, in, they're not in retreat, not at all. They're hotter now than they were two weeks ago. I can tell. And they're saying worse stuff now than they were two weeks ago, you know? So it's, a, it's going to be really a hot battle the next couple years. I have to end because I have to. End but one last, because you're so ambitious.
0: Are the are the government
2: shutdowns? Uh, is this a legitimate
1: no, tactic, not. or are our it guys started not with Newton 26 days? It started with Newton 26 days. In the old days, it was one or two days. It was overspending. It was quickly resolved. You didn't even remember it. Now it's become an attempt to bring down the government. Okay. Thank you. Hello. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you, Thank you Mr. Matthews.
0: Book signing.